This is our fourth session uh, looking at uh, what we have uh, tonight. And uh, after that, I think we're probably going to go seven times. So tonight, and then we'll skip July 4th week, and then three more times in July. So I think that's our... Our schedule. Uh, let me just uh, review. We haven't done any review really uh, since we started, and I don't want to go back to the beginning, but I do want to go back uh, at least uh, to the beginning of last week, and I'm not going to go over the material again. We're, that's not the point. I want to do this in just uh, uh, two or three, four minutes at the most. But I want to uh, kind of get a running start into what we're going to cover uh, tonight. Last time we got into what inerrancy did not demand. We talked about a definition of inerrancy, how it is the orthodox view of Scripture, how the Bible was written with perfect accuracy, this is the view of the early church. This is the view of Christ. This is what Scripture teaches. And we're going to actually get into that tonight. But uh, we got into verbal plenary inspiration. Uh, but with all of that, we then got into what inerrancy does not demand. And we talked about mechanical dictation. Just because you believe in inerrancy doesn't mean that you believe that God dictated the Scripture. He did not. Now, there are a few places in Scripture where it says that that's the way God uh, operated. He gave the very words to the writer and the writer would write them down right then. But... That is not the way the Bible was mainly written. Those are kind of the exceptions. And uh, so we, we don't have uh, mechanical dictation. And as we mentioned uh, last time as well, I know of no real solid evangelical scholar, no real well-known theologian that believes in uh, mechanical dictation. It not only uh, doesn't demand mechanical dictation, it does not demand that the writers of Scripture be sinless and even free from the erroneous views of their day. Some, back in the first century, didn't know that the world was round. Some in the first century didn't have uh, all kinds of knowledge about our solar system. It was actually uh, a normal view that the earth was the center of the solar system. We know now that it's the sun. But just because some of the writers of Scripture uh, had some uh, views... Uh, about science and about some other things that weren't exactly accurate, 
that still doesn't mean that God did not use their imperfections to get what He wanted in Scripture. God can do that. Uh, It also means that uh, the New Testament writers always quote the Old Testament verbatim. It doesn't mean that they have to do that. Inerrancy does not demand that. We saw a few examples of that. Uh, Sometimes the authors of Scripture would quote something from the Old Testament. They wrote it down. But when you really looked at what they said, it wasn't exactly word for word what the Old Testament passage was saying. But inerrancy doesn't demand that it has to be exactly word for word. We do that all the time. We'll, you'll hear a preacher to say something about a, a verse, and he'll quote something from Genesis or the psalm, and he'll, he'll just kind of paraphrase it. And if it's a familiar passage of Scripture, we'll know exactly what he's saying. We'll nod in agreement. Yep, that was it. Now, he didn't quote it verbatim, but we don't uh, demand that. And we don't demand that the writers of Scripture do the same. The um, Bible uh, inerrancy doesn't mean that uh, the Biblical writers used conventional grammar and syntax. We uh, saw last week that uh, many times they would uh, say some things that if you were really looking at the uh, lexicons and the, uh, the Greek textbooks, you would see that the way the New Testament writer wrote it, it wasn't exactly like a Greek scholar would, would put it down. But uh, again, inerrancy doesn't demand this. This uh, doesn't interfere with inerrancy at all. Inerrancy also does not demand that the biblical writers not use figures of speech, and phenomenal language, and poetic forms, and common expressions of the day. We all know that the Bible is full of phenomenal language and figures of speech. The Bible says the land of Canaan flows with milk and honey. We use that as an example. What does that mean? Does it truly, literally flow with milk and honey? No, it, uh, it means it's a land of great plenty. That it is a prosperous land. That's what it means. And uh, that kind of language is used all over the place. We do that. We talk about the sun setting, the sun rising. That's phenomenal language. You say things as it appears to happen. Not as it really happens. The sun doesn't really rise. It just looks like it's rising. 
We also saw that inerrancy does not demand that the genealogies and uh, chronologies uh, were always presented in uh, a full and orderly manner as scholars would do today. Uh, genealogies in uh, the first century were very rarely complete. Uh, many times uh, the genealogy would leave out people, usually on purpose. Uh, wasn't uh, a mistake. It was they did it that way because there were some people they didn't want you to know that were members of their family or members of their tree. Kind of, kind of like the way we we talk uh, about. Uh, some of our kin, so that's been going on. But um, this was a common custom, and so it uh, it doesn't mean that uh, just because the genealogies uh, were not done like they would be done today, that that kind of does away with inerrancy. Not at all. It does not demand that. And another thing we saw, a couple more, we saw that inerrancy does not demand that the parallel accounts of the same event be verbally identical. We used a couple of illustrations about this, the story of Jesus cleansing the temple. All four gospel writers mentioned this. But John mentioned it in John chapter 2, very early in Jesus' ministry. The other Gospels mentioned it late in Jesus' ministry. This isn't a contradiction. Uh, Just because the same thing uh, is is not uh, mentioned uh, verbally identical, that that doesn't mean that uh, somebody made a mistake. Most people believe that Jesus cleansed the temple early in his ministry and late in his ministry. Why would he only do it one time anyway? This was an ongoing problem. He may have done it more than two times. He may have done it five or six. And then uh, inerrancy does not demand that... uh, Or the other other example, let me just... uh, This is probably the main one we looked at, and that is the superscription on the cross. Remember Mark said that the little sign on the cross said the King of the Jews. Matthew said this is Jesus, King of the Jews. Luke said this is the King of the Jews. And John said Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. None of those are exactly correct. When you put them all together, It says this, this is Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Most scholars believe that's exactly what the sign said. And the writers put the main thing that they saw or they thought was important. Uh, This doesn't mean there was a mistake. And one last thing, the uh, inerrancy does not demand that translations or copies 
of the original manuscripts be inerrant. Remember, at the very beginning, we made it clear that inerrancy has to do with the original autographs. There are many copies of those autographs. In fact, there are about 5,000 copies of the New Testament uh, of the original manuscripts that have been reestablished, about 5,000. But guess what? Even all of those, as accurate as they are, inerrancy is not talking about those copies. We've got some great translations. If we get a chance, and I think we're going to do this toward the end, we're going to look at some English translations of the Bible. We all have our favorites. We all have several at home. Uh, We could all name a dozen translations just like that. Here's the deal. Are they all good? Do they have any mistakes? Do they have any glaring errors? Uh, Do they have more weaknesses than good points? Are some of them just about as good as you can get? We'll we'll talk about that. We'll spend about uh, 30 minutes one night uh, looking at uh, the main popular uh, English translations, and we will uh, talk about when they came out, a little bit about the committee, how it was all put together, some of the uh, people on the committee perhaps, and, uh, and then some of the main points of that translation, some of the things that uh, people like and some of the things that maybe they flubbed up. So... We'll, uh, they do, they do. <laughs> yes, you are. Uh, you're exactly right. But inerrancy doesn't mean that our translations are inerrant. And let me just let me just say this, about as plain as I can say it: no translation is inerrant. No translation is inerrant. I think we all know, we all probably have a friend or two or maybe ten that are into the King James only uh, camp. They truly believe that the King James translation is inerrant. That's their big deal. That's their fight. That's what they're all about. And they think all other translations are horrible and wrong and bad and we need to never look at them. Only the King James. And they have all kinds of tracts and books and articles. And if you want to have a little fun, get on the Internet. King James only. Just Google King James only crowd or whatever. And uh, it's unbelievable. Unbelievable. Yes. Well, that just says there's some good ones out there. That's true. And the King James is even a good one. But it's not inerrant. What does inerrancy mean? It means this. 
that we can trust the scriptures absolutely and not be deceived theologically, historically, geographically, or scientifically. And uh, we're going to tonight get into what the Bible says about itself. We haven't really uh, gotten into that yet. We've kind of crawled and uh, trotted kind of up to this place. But uh, tonight, we're going to get into some evidence for inerrancy through the biblical testimony. We've talked about inerrancy. We've talked about its importance. Is there any real evidence for it? Does the Bible claim to be inerrant? And the answer to that, I believe, is yes, it does. Now, we all know there are a lot of books out there that claim to be holy. Lots of books. What makes our scriptures inerrant and perfect and something that will not deceive? theologically and otherwise. Let's look at the biblical testimony concerning itself. Now, this is mainly just giving some passages, and uh, we could literally spend days here doing this because there are absolutely hundreds of passages, hundreds of verses in Scripture that really nail down uh, that the Bible is the Word of God and it is inspired by God. And what we are seeing and what we are reading is from God, from the mouth of God even. And so we're going to just uh, hit the high spots. I want to uh, start with uh, Exodus Chapter 4, verses 10 through 12. It says this, But Moses pleaded with the Lord, O Lord, I'm not very good with words. I've never been, and I'm not now. Even though you have spoken to me, I still get tongue-tied and my words get tangled. Then the Lord asked Moses, Who makes a person's mouth? Who decides whether people speak or do not speak? Hear or do not hear? See or do not see? It is not I the Lord? Now go, I will be with you as you speak, and I will instruct you in what to say. That's uh, that's pretty good. Pretty plain there. Exodus 34:27 says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Write down all these instructions, for they represent the terms of the covenant I am making with you and Israel. So, God many times gives the exact words that uh, he wants us to have over 
in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 2. Do not add to or subtract from these commands I am giving you. Just obey the commands of the Lord your God that I am giving you. That's, uh, that's pretty serious. Deuteronomy 18.20 But any prophet who falsely claims to speak in my name, who speaks in the name of another God, must die. So, that's pretty serious. Hundreds of references in the Pentateuch say things like, Thus saith the Lord, the Lord said, the Lord spoke, the saying of the Lord, the word of the Lord. The point is, this is not man's word, this is God's word. And there are hundreds of references here that get into this. We just wanted to look at a handful. Over uh, in Isaiah, Isaiah some 20 times, uh, the book claims that his words are the word of the Lord. Isaiah 1.10 says this, Listen to the Lord, you leaders of Sodom. Listen to the law of our God, people of Gomorrah. He's speaking the word of God. Jeremiah, over a hundred times in the book of Jeremiah the word of the Lord came to me, or something similar to that. Over in uh, Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 2. The Lord first gave messages to Jeremiah during the 13th year, the reign of Josiah, son of Ammon, king of uh, Judah. And in uh, verse Four uh, is another one. Let's see. Verse 11. Then the Lord said to me, Look, Jeremiah, what do you see? And I replied, I see a branch from an almond tree. And so here is the Lord speaking directly to the prophet. Uh, that was Jeremiah 1. Uh, we looked at verses 2 and 11. If you look all through Jeremiah, you'll see, uh, I think it's 90-something times, where the word of the Lord came to me, something similar to that. Over in Ezekiel, some 60 times, Ezekiel claims that his words are God's words. In Ezekiel 3, uh 10 and 11. Then he said, Son of man, let all my words sink deep into your own heart first. Listen to them carefully for yourself. Then, verse 11 too, Then go to your people in exile and say to them, This is what the Sovereign Lord says. Do this whether they listen to you or not. That is so uh, direct, so clear. These are the uh, these are the major prophets, making it pretty clear that 
what they are speaking is what God is speaking. Daniel 10.9 says pretty much the same thing. Then I heard the man speak, and when I heard the sound of his voice, I fainted and lay there with my face to the ground. These are God's words. This is the message from God. We're not going to uh, just go down the list here. I'm not going to read everything. But the minor prophets, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi, all Twelve of those uh, minor prophets have several places in there. Usually at the very beginning, almost all of them at the first verse and the uh, first uh, chapter, first, uh, first verse. This is the message that the Lord gave to Israel through the prophet Malachi, that's just Malachi 1.1. And the same thing can be said about uh, Zephaniah 1.1, Nahum 1.12, Micah 1.1, Jonah 1.1. Pretty much there at the beginning to just set the stage of what these prophets are saying. They're not saying their words, they're saying God's words. And so... They're not presenting their view, but they are speaking from God. They're all speaking the Word of God. This is the Old Testament witness and uh, many, many others that we're, we're just not going to uh, get to. Let me uh, get back into uh, Psalm There is one more in the Old Testament I want to look at. And of course, you could probably guess when we're, when we're in Psalm. (laughs) I thought somebody might, uh, might guess that. Psalm 119. This is a major big deal chapter. The longest, uh, chapter, I guess, in the Bible. Psalm 119. And I want to uh, read Verse 89, Psalm 119, 89. Your settled word, O Lord, stands firm in heaven. This is the psalmist's attitude toward the Word of God. In fact, this whole chapter is really about the Word of God. Joyful are people of integrity who follow the instructions of of the Lord. That's verse 1. Verse 18. Open your eyes to see the wonderful truths of your instructions. Verse 33. Teach me your decrees, O Lord. I will keep them to the end. Verse 41. Lord, give me your unfailing love, the salvation that you promised me. And many, many others. When you get a chance, and I know you've done it before, but uh, just sit down sometime and read Psalm 119. Tremendous stuff.
What about the New Testament writers? There are uh, there are some uh, passages in the New Testament that uh, talk about inerrancy, that talk about the Word of God, that talk about the specialness of the Scriptures. And uh, I guess we'll start with Second Timothy. We've even used this one already, but Second uh, Timothy three sixteen and seventeen. Somebody read that from a translation that we haven't uh, checked out tonight. Somebody have another uh, translation? Okay. Okay. Super. All Scripture is inspired by God and is useful to teach us what is true and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we are wrong and teaches us to do what is right. God uses it to prepare and equip His people to do every good work. This is a classic passage, maybe as good a passage as there is in the Bible about the nature of Scripture. Uh, It says it's God-breathed. That word uh, literally means God is breathing in and out of the writers. All of it comes from God. And the fact that it comes from God and it is God-breathed, that makes it profitable. It's not profitable because it's a good book or an instructive book or a book that can help us. It's uh, it's profitable because it is from God. That's why it's profitable. All of it comes from God. So He can make us mature. The Word of God is God's means of equipment or equipping for ministry. That's why studying Scripture and getting acquainted with Scripture and learning Scripture is so important. Knowing the Word of God is, uh, is actually a command. Did you know the Bible never tells us to read the Bible? Nowhere in Scripture does it say, read your Bibles. But guess what the Bible does say? Study. Study the Bible. Yes, and that too. But study is different than reading. Reading is... Fine, has its place. But study is what makes us mature. Knowing what God is saying to us and knowing what we're reading, knowing what it means. You ever read a passage and you didn't have any idea what it, what it means? Well, that's, that's, a good, that's a good place. <laughs> now go... Kind of do a little research and it takes discipline, takes time, 
I remember uh, back many years ago, it might have even been in the 60s, I ran across a, a book in a, some Christian bookstore somewhere that talked about something like 10 easy steps to become a, a mature Christian, something like that. I don't remember the exact title, but it was quick and easy. That was the point. If you want to be a good Christian, a mature Christian, a knowledgeable Christian, a victorious Christian, here's a few principles to just get down good and you're on your way. And really, just the opposite is true. There is no such thing as becoming a good, mature Christian quickly. It's impossible. It's impossible. So this passage, this passage really kind of hits on that. The study of the Word of God is God's means of equipping for ministry. That is a, that is a great passage. Also, over in Second uh, Peter. Your Bible, like mine, it has recipes and business cards and bulletins that go back about four years and notes and all kind of things, tracks. And uh, this is the, the reason I brought this Bible is I have less of all that in this one than any other Bible I got. Second uh, Peter one. 20 and 21. Above all, you must realize that no prophecy in Scripture ever came from the prophet's own understanding. Wow. That's exactly what we've been talking about all night. Or from human initiative. The Word of God it comes from God. That's, that's uh, pretty simple. No, those prophets were moved by the Holy Spirit and they spoke from God. Somebody read that in another translation. There's a little phrase there I'm trying to catch on some other... Okay. There you go. Mm-hmm. Yep. Private interpretation. That's what I was hoping someone would have. Uh, the Roman Catholic Church actually teaches that this particular passage teaches that the average person cannot understand the Scriptures. The Bible teaches just the opposite. And of course, the Roman Catholic Church teaches that the hierarchy, they have a system. And the Reformation tried to tried to rid Christianity of this system. And the system is, there's two kinds of Christians. Those that know a whole lot, way up here, the big shots, and then the rest of you peons way down here. Clergy and laity. Clergy and laity. The people who you go to to get taught... And then those that are down here just getting by. Yes. Yes. You're right. I've heard of that. Yeah. That's good. 
this, of course, is uh, not the right, not the right interpretation. What I think it means is Scripture is not made up from anyone's source. That Scripture comes from God. I think that's the uh, correct interpretation. So it's carried along by the breath of God, actually. And so the Spirit of God moves men along. You know, the uh, speaking of the Reformation, Martin Luther nailed those uh, 95 Theses to the church door there at Wittenberg. And uh, he, he tried to change a whole lot of things. You know, a lot of stuff didn't ever get changed much. Some things did, but a lot of things did not. And one of the main things that did not is the clergy-laity distinction. That's still strong. It's strong in evangelical circles. It's especially strong in, in Baptist churches and uh, charismatic churches and Assembly of God, the holiness groups. Uh, especially there, and the mainline denominations, Lutheran, Presbyterian, Episcopal, and of course, uh, stronger than ever in the, the Catholic Church. And that is the, the paid clergy, the people who have the education, the people that have been to seminary, the people that are in their ivory towers studying the Bible. They know it. And if you want to know it, then you come to them and ask them. And they basically, a lot of these churches, discourage personal Bible study. Yes, ma'am. Absolutely. That, that makes sense, too. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yes, absolutely. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, you're on to something about that. Yeah. You're on to something. And, of course, uh, priesthood of the believer is uh, the, the, the great, clear doctrine that, uh, that teaches that every single Christian is a priest. We have direct access to God. We don't have to go through any other person to know God or get to know about God. And so that that is very, very important. Uh, let me also look at First Peter chapter one, verse uh, twenty-three through twenty-five. Somebody read that. First Peter one, twenty-three through twenty-five. Unreal. That what translation? Okay, and that is a fantastic passage. Uh, regeneration occurs by the Word of God. That's just real simple. If the Word of God was full of errors, if the Word of God was not directly from God, if the Word of God was the work of men, it could not regenerate anyone. And so this is a proof. If the Word of God is not perfect, it couldn't accomplish what these verses say that it accomplishes. This is about as effective a statement 
about the inspiration of Scripture you'll find. Hebrews, another uh, passage in the New Testament that speaks to the nature of Scripture. Hebrews 4.12 For the Word of God is alive and powerful. It is sharper than the sharpest two-edged sword, cutting between soul and spirit, between joint and marrow. It exposes our innermost thoughts and desires. Now somebody uh, read that version where it talks about the quick and the dead. (laughs) Anybody got that? Uh, Hebrews 4.12. Anybody uh, says that the Word of God is quick? That's an old English word. I think that's the the old King James. Uh, the uh, Bible is a critic of man's heart. That's what this passage is talking about. Uh, it isn't something that's uh, dry and dusty. It gets uh, into our innermost being. And it's living, it's powerful, it's sharp. And to be quite frank, this is the very reason why a lot of people have a problem with the Bible. They don't ever study it. They don't ever read it. They don't ever own one. And of course, if you got into some Bible question with them, they're experts And they can tell you anything you want to know about their opinion of Scripture, but uh, they don't really know anything. And they don't get really acquainted with the Bible. And here's the reason. People don't like to see themselves as this verse talks about. The Word of God is sharper than a two-edged sword. It's a sharp instrument. And uh, it shows us what we're like in the eyes of God. And that really separates, when you really think about it, I know that we talk about conservative evangelical Christians on one hand, and then the others on the other hand that are Basically, your liberals who don't believe in inerrancy, they don't even believe that Jesus is the only way to heaven. There's all kinds of other things they don't believe. And it comes down to, to really just, just one thing. They don't see themselves as God sees them. You either think you are a sinner in need of a Savior, or you don't. That's really the two kinds of people out there. And there are two kinds of churches out there. Those that talk about both of those views. And uh, Hebrews 4.12 really gets into that. James 1.18, He begat us with the Word of God. Acts 4.25, David here is talking about uh, the Word of God. And God spoke to Israel. And uh, David attributes uh, this uh, 
to God. And then uh, we come to, to Jesus. Did Jesus believe in inerrancy? Did he believe uh, that the Scriptures were inerrant? And I believe the answer to that is yes. Uh, Jesus actually treated the Old Testament narratives as statements of fact. Jesus actually believed that the narrative passages of the Old Testament were facts of history. And uh, this is borne out all through the Gospels. He used the Old Testament as the court of appeal in matters of of faith and conduct. Uh, Many times people would ask Jesus a question and He would simply just quote the Old Testament Scriptures. And He would quote them in such a way to where that was it. That was the last word. That's what the Scriptures say. Matthew 23. Let's look at a couple of those uh, places. Matthew 23, 2 and 3. The teachers of the religious law and the Pharisees are the official interpreters of the law of Moses. So practice and obey whatever they tell you You don't follow their example, for they don't practice what they teach. Jesus here was bringing out uh, the hypocrisy of some teachers. Over in uh, Matthew 22, verse 29... Jesus replied, your mistake is that you don't know the Scriptures and you don't know the power of God. He's talking about how ignorant they are of the Scriptures. What is really settled in Scripture. Matthew 22, 31 and 32. But now... As to whether there will be resurrection of the dead, haven't you read about it in the Scriptures? Long after Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had died, God said, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. So He is the God of the living, not the dead. So, here is Jesus quoting the law as authoritative. This is the authoritative source. Over in John, he viewed the Old Testament here in a few passages that we'll look at as predictive of himself. John 5, uh, verse 39 John 5:39 You search the scriptures because you think they give you eternal life but the scriptures point to me Unbelievable the scriptures testify of me and the point here is and you don't even see it you don't even recognize it Luke 24:27 He talks about things concerning Himself. And those things are the Old Testament Scriptures. Uh, 
All will be accomplished. Luke 18.31 And many, many, we could use many examples here. Uh, Mark 14.21 Luke 22.37 Matthew 26.53-56 All of these passages. Uh, it's Jesus giving His uh, statement and uh, His Word on Scripture, on Old Testament Scripture, how it spoke of Him. And I think Jesus expressly stated the authority of the Old Testament and of His own words. Good passage here in John chapter 10, verse 35. And you know that the Scriptures cannot be altered, or in some translations, cannot be broken. So if those people who received God's message were called gods, the Scriptures cannot be broken. In uh, Matthew five seventeen and 18, not one jot or one tittle will, will pass away. That's like not a comma or not a period will will pass away. And my words will not pass away over in Mark 13.31. Now all of this has to do with the Old Testament Scriptures. Yet there are some things that Jesus said about the New Testament Scriptures that had not even been written yet. Hadn't been written yet. What's the first book of the New Testament? That's actually, I'm talking about the first book to be written. I believe that was James. Do we know what year James was written? Anybody want to? Turn over to James, see if uh, your Bible gives a a date of the writing. Exactly, around 50, 4950. First first book, first book written in our New Testament, book of James. That was some years after Jesus was on earth. And yet, I'm going to throw out a few things here that show that he pre-authenticated the New Testament, which would be written under the supervision of his own disciples. John 14:26 says this, but when the Father sends the Advocate as my representative, that is the Holy Spirit, He will teach you everything and will remind you of everything I have told you. In other words, there's more writing to come. And it will include things I want you to know and remember. That's basically a prophecy. The New Testament is coming. And it will have teaching that you will see from me. Uh, John 16, 12 
through 14. There is so much more I want to tell you, but you can't bear it now. When the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all truth. He will not speak of His own, but will tell you what He has heard. He will tell you about the future. Uh, And then verse 14 even. He will bring me glory by telling you whatever he receives from me. Wow. He's going to guide you into all truth. Somebody read Matthew 16, 18. I also say to you that you are Peter and on this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. He repeated that in Matthew 18, 18. I tell you the truth, whatever you forbid on earth will be forbidden in heaven, and whether you permit on earth, same basic thing there. Uh... This passage is misunderstood that uh, the church is built on Peter. It's actually built on the apostles. And that last passage in 18, that's, uh, he's repeating it uh, to the apostles. The point is, Jesus would say things through the writers of the New Testament. And uh, John 20... 21. It's a good place to probably end tonight. I think we've gone a minute over here. John 20, 21. Again, he said, Peace be with you as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. Jesus planned to say things to his apostles and uh, the Holy Spirit inspired that later on. There's no question that Jesus placed His authentic approval on the reliability of uh, the Scriptures. And we will kind of stop there, and we will continue this two weeks from tonight. We're going to take a break for the July 4th week. And uh, thanks for coming and see you guys uh, soon.